the Word of God. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing with the Word of God, and we want our faith to be increased today. Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. By God's grace, we want to cover verses 10 through 14, cover them thoroughly, and cover them in a way that will excite us about the things that are coming in the universe and will convict us about how we ought to live in light of those events. At verse 10 of 2 Peter 3, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Amen and amen. Amen. Before we dive into these five verses, let's look briefly at the last clause of verse 9, which said, but that all should come to repentance. We have heard 2 Peter 3.9 so many times from those who don't understand it, like it's a mantra proving the free will of man and that God wants everyone to repent, and if they would but repent, they could obtain eternal life for themselves. We've heard that, and I don't want to spend time on that subject much. The reason I want to look at the clause is because we haven't covered it yet, and because I want you to be thankful that He has brought you to a place of repentance. Amen. We want to thank God that we've ever repented, and that we have repented to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because it's the evidence of eternal life. The all that God desires to come to repentance because it says, but that all should come to repentance is limited in the context to the usward that is in the clause in the middle of the ninth verse where it says long suffering to usward. So we limit the word all to usward just like we limit the word any in the previous clause to the word usward. It isn't describing the whole human race. God does not will for all men to repent or he would grant it and they would. It's that simple. The context by virtue of us word and Peter's audience is the elect of God. Repentance is prime evidence of eternal life and a general rule that the elect will repent. That is the general rule. We don't deal with exceptions except to cover them once in a while. And when you make it, when you allow an exception to even approach the general rule, you are a confused person. And we do not want to confuse the doctrine of salvation by letting the few exceptions in the Bible of very select audiences of unconverted elect that do not repent alter the doctrine that it is repentance that is the evidence of eternal life. 
And without it, there is no evidence of eternal life. It doesn't matter how vigorously they rub the belly of Buddha, that doesn't show a zealous child of God. As we have heard in the past. Repentance. Look at Acts chapter 11 with me very briefly. You'll want to keep your hand at 2 Peter chapter 3. But in Acts chapter 11, the Apostle Peter is called to the questioning by the elders and apostles of Jerusalem for what he had done in chapter 10 with Cornelius the Gentile and his household. And Peter explains to them in the first 10 verses or so, 12 verses, what had happened. And after the apostles had heard the explanation, here's their response in verse 18. Peter's explanation runs all the way to verse 17 as he describes the spiritual response of Cornelius and his household. Verse 18, when they heard these things, they held their peace. They had no more complaining to make that Peter had gone in and messed around with Gentiles. They held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Repentance is the evidence of eternal life. Notice, they didn't glorify Peter's preaching. Because that didn't bring about the repentance. Notice that they didn't glorify these sinners for repenting. Because that didn't cause their repentance. They glorified God that He had granted repentance to the Gentiles for the evidence of eternal life. Because only one with eternal life in them will ever repent. And the likes of which of believing the Lord Jesus Christ. And we already know about Cornelius that long before he met Peter, he already feared God with all his house, gave alms to the people and prayed always, and his alms and his prayers were accepted in heaven, which is only true of a righteous man. And when Peter first met him, he said of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, including you Gentile nations, He that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Cornelius was already a worker of righteousness. But he was granted repentance in repenting of his sins and the lifestyle and religions of his parents, the Italians of the Roman Empire, and he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So back to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, God grants repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. God grants repentance unto life as he did Cornelius. It is preposterous to use this soundbite to say that God's will is that all men everywhere, without exception, from Adam and Eve on, are supposed to repent from, from God. That he's going to, he expects that and it's his will for that to happen. Until a man is born again, man cannot even imagine repentance. The Bible says, through the pride of his countenance, God, man will not think upon God at all. God is not in all his thoughts. When God does not even enter into the thoughts of a man, how in the world shall he repent? There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, but they don't repent for being out of the way. If you'll turn back just a few pages to 2 Timothy chapter 2, you can see again that repentance is a gift from God. It's not something that we can work up, and it's not something that preaching can create. God must grant it. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 25. Let's get verse 
24, so that you can understand that this is Paul explaining to Timothy how to be a good minister and what a perfect minister would do toward men. But that won't accomplish what needs to be accomplished, and that's repentance. God has to grant it, no matter how good the minister is, nor how well he was taught by the greatest of the apostles. Verse 24, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. If God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will preaching, nor your hearing can deliver you from the power of the devil. The devil can take you captive according to his own will, but it must be the will of God that stops that by granting you repentance to acknowledge the truth that you've been opposing. You're catching yourself coming and going. You're talking out of both sides of your mouth. You're inconsistent with reality. You're inconsistent with yourself. But and that would that should get us excited to want to chop somebody's arm off to believe the truth. But the Bible says, no, don't strive with them because you can't convert them. You can't you can't by reason convince them that they're unreasonable. They're unreasonable because they're the captive pawns of the devil. So what has to what makes the difference? God must grant repentance, and it's a peradventure part of His will, and His will is to give it to His elect. And it's evidence of eternal life. Back to Second Peter chapter 3. Repentance is His gift, so why doesn't He give it to all? Why is there anyone out there opposing themselves? Why is it a peradventure? Because a preacher, when he's preaching, most of the time, God's not going to grant repentance. And some of the time, He will. The gospel is needed to repent, but God doesn't even get the gospel to everyone. It's only been the minority in the history of the world that's ever heard the truth of God as revealed by God's revelation. If God wants all to repent, why does He withhold both the grace of repentance and the means of repentance, which is hearing the revealed truth of God? So all of that is to say, they're wrong in abusing our verse. That verse is our verse because it comes out of our Bible and it doesn't belong to them. Those that have another Jesus and another gospel and another spirit. Let's get into verse 10. But the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord and the day of God, as it is called in verse 12, is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's nothing else. It's not that Jesus Christ comes on one day and there's seven years or there's a thousand years or there's a thousand and seven years until there's the great day of judgment. It's the same event in the Bible. Jesus is coming back at which time He will wreak vengeance on His enemies and we will admire Him and be gathered together unto Him forever. It's all one day. Throughout the New Testament, it is one day. There are no gaps or multiple days or third comings or fourth comings. And it is by the grace of God, out of 400 Baptist churches in this county, we are one of the very, very few that believe that. The rest are all confused with futurism and the speculations of men from C.I. Schofield Onward. The day of the Lord and the day of God is the day of judgment and the day of Christ's coming. The promise of Christ's coming is the topic of this chapter. 
It was mentioned in verse 4. Where is the promise of His coming? It's in verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. Verse 13. Nevertheless, we according to His promise. Jesus promised to come back. The angels promised He would come back. The prophets of the Old Testament promised He would come. The apostles of the New Testament promised He would come. He's coming according to promise. And this one day is also called the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, and the day of God. In verse 7, it's called the day of judgment of this chapter. The day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Perdition meaning destruction. The day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. If you flip back to the previous chapter, 2, chapter 2, verse 9, it is called the day of judgment to be punished. And that is the end and future of the unjust. That is the wicked. There's one great day coming. Look at Matthew chapter 10 with me. Let's, let's see that in the New Testament, this is a common theme. Matthew chapter 10, always hold your place at 2 Peter chapter 3. Here a little and there a little, we uh, turn through the pages of Scripture, like Paul in Romans chapter 1, Paul in Hebrews chapter 1, where he says again, 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 and again, as he looks up different passages of Scripture and quotes them to us, because we want a Bible basis for explaining the text before us. The day of the Lord is also the day of God, is also the day of Christ's coming. Jesus referred to it. Matthew 10.15, Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So Jesus spoke of the day of judgment, not days of judgment, the day of judgment. Matthew 10. Look at chapter 11, verse 22. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. Verse 24. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. There it is again, the day of judgment. Look at chapter 12 and verse 36. Since you're not in Capernaum or Tyre or Sidon, you can escape the force of those previous verses. What about this one? But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Again, it's the day of judgment, but here it's every idle word. Every word that comes out of our mouths that does not have a good purpose for the profit, for the glory of God or the profit of others. Why was it spoken? And for those of us, and that is a first person plural pronoun including your pastor, for those of us who talk more than others of you, that's a plural pronoun for the rest of you, in the second person, this verse should sober us about what speech comes out of our mouths. Because it says that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Before this day ends, we want to satisfy the word blameless. As church members, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, and we don't want Him to be able to blame us for faults of speech. Now, for those of you that don't talk very much, you know, you have your own problem. You are a tree of life to no one. You are worthless in the world for helping anyone else. So to balance the scales and make us all guilty before God, which is the purpose of the Bible, 
Just remember that. You say, well, which is easier? I don't know. You know, I'd rather confess that I said too much than to say too little. And most, and some of you would rather say too little and confess to that than say too much. And it's all a difference of perspective, but when we get before the Lord, guess what? He isn't going to care. You know, did we measure up to what we should have with this gift called our glory? But the point being, since I just got off track a little bit, the point is, notice the frequent references, Matthew 10, Matthew 11, Matthew 12, to this coming day called the Day of Judgment. Paul spoke of it frequently. Look at Romans chapter 2. We want to realize that this day that we're getting the details about in 2 Peter chapter 3 was commonly used by the apostles and by the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 2 and verse 5. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This is the same day, the day of the Lord, the day of God, the day of judgment. Here it's called the day of wrath because God's going to show his wrath and his power upon the world of the wicked. And it will reveal the righteous judgment of God. Here in Romans chapter 2, look at verse 16. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Paul's gospel included warnings and information about God judging the secrets of men in a particular day of judgment. And that day is coming. Now the day of judgment is not popular preaching material today. It, most pulpits don't use it anymore. It's, they, they accuse anyone that preaches about the coming day of judgment as hell, fire, and brimstone preaching and Bible thumping and whatever else, whatever other terms of ridicule or slurs they want to use against the preaching of the Word of God. But the gospel of Jesus Christ and Paul's gospel included this coming day. Now I've said before, and I said it last week, that if we heard Noah telling us about rain, we had a choice to make. Though there hadn't been any rain, maybe it will rain. Or if we already believe the testimony of God's Word because it's written on this side of the rain, because the rain did come, that we know that this day is coming. It doesn't matter what the world says out there. They're wrong on every other subject they touch. Why shouldn't they be wrong on this? This is God's Word. They don't know where we come came from, why we're here, or where we're going. We know the answer to all three of those questions, and most of our children know them. There's a day coming, brethren. There's a day coming. Look at 1 Corinthians, a few pages to the right. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when Paul takes up pen, something can be seen about the coming day. Though sometimes it's a very small reference to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, speaking of these Corinthians that had so many spiritual gifts and took so much pleasure in them, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what's in that verse. Waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the day of the Lord is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, why are you belaboring such a simple point? Because if you knew what the rest of the world teaches, they've got multiple days. Right. And they'll, they'll distinguish between the day of the Lord and the day of God and the day of Christ and the second coming and the rapture, which isn't even in the New Testament. Right. 
Do we believe that Jesus Christ is coming back to gather up all of His elect, living and dead? Absolutely. But it certainly isn't called the rapture, and it doesn't look anything like what they call the rapture. They have God, Jesus Christ, coming back and gathering believers up out of the world, and everyone else just continues on living as they were. That is not the case. When Jesus Christ comes back for us, that is the end of this universe, this world, and this heaven, and He'll burn up the rest. Every time it's found in the Bible, the two of them are together as the day of the Lord and the day of God. Right. And so we have 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at 1 John four seventeen with me. Let's see if John believed in it. 1 John chapter 4, I hope he did. Because he's the one that wrote us John 14 that said, I go to prepare a place for you. Right. And if I go to prepare a place for you, because if it's for us, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. First John 4, 17, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. I kind of skipped over 1 Corinthians 1.8 where it said that God was able to confirm them blameless unto that great day. Right. Notice what this says. We can be bold in the day of judgment. Not just survive it. Be bold. 1 John 2.28 and 29, if you look back just a couple, a one page, it says, verse 28, Now little children abide in Him, 1 John 2.28, that when He shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him in His coming. We can have boldness. Herein is our love made perfect. Love takes a person to perfection when they are loving like God loves. 1 John chapters 3, 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 5 talks about our love of the brethren and by so doing, it leads us to perfection that we can be bold in the day of judgment because God is love. Right. So are we in this world. But notice, the day of judgment. The day of judgment. The day of judgment. The day of judgment. This world fusses about everything that doesn't matter. Global warming. A coming ice age. The election in 2016. Ebola. We're going to give thanks to God for Ebola in the second service. Have you read anything about Ebola in the last several months? What happened to it? Was that some political scare they just gave the media? Are you wanting me to believe that Ebola is raging nationwide and hospitals are filled with them and cemeteries are filling up, but there's a conspiracy to keep us from knowing about it in today's electronic age? They worry about everything but what matters. Right. You know, Ebola would be a pretty nice way to go. Only a few days and you're in heaven. They don't care about the... Look at what's coming. The day of judgment. Yes. The day of judgment. Yes. That isn't death. Death is a picnic compared to the day of judgment. The Bible says it is appointed to men once to die, but after this, the judgment... Jude calls it the judgment of the great day because that's when angels are sentenced. Okay, we'll come as a thief in the night. Let's get back to 2 Peter chapter 3. If you were there at 1 John, we're close by. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, with the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians tells us that when the world is saying peace and safety, they feel that they've got things under control, then sudden destruction will fall upon this world. You don't know when a thief is coming or you would stop the thief. 
They come when you are least suspecting. They watch your house. They case your joint. They look out to find out when you're not home. They look at patterns of behavior in your arrivals and departures. They look at light patterns in your home to come when you're not expecting it. And the Lord's going to come when the world is not expecting it. And I love the way that He's coming. If that's the way He's chosen, then I love it. First point. Second point is, my little mind is able to grab a few benefits from the fact that He's going to come as a thief in the night. That means we don't know when He's coming. So when should we be living righteously? All the time. Especially right now. And as soon as right now is history, right then. Lord, help us. We want Him to find us in peace, without spot, blameless, with a holy lifestyle, and in all godliness. Paul used the very same language in 1 Thessalonians 5. It'll be read to you in the second service. It was read to you last Lord's Day. Turn over to Matthew chapter 24 and look at an example that Jesus gave of this thief in the night because he used it several times. I'm going to show you Matthew 24. Paul had it in 1 Thessalonians 5, and Peter has it right here in 2 Peter chapter 3. Matthew chapter 24. Verse 42. Watch therefore. This is, this is most strictly applied to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD because of the verse that went before it. For simplicity's sake, and I do believe it's the best division to make, the difference between 70 AD destruction and the coming of Jesus Christ in the great day of judgment is at the chapter break of 24 and 25. The three events of chapter 25 are all related to the second coming. But right here, verse 41, two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. The one taken is the one killed by the Romans. Do Do you know how the rapture people use that verse? Jesus is going to snatch one up and the other is going to be left. That is not what it's just... I'm getting off track again. This is See, this is a problem of time management. But there's so many things that I want you to know. Look what it says in verse 39 about the flood. And knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So who gets taken? The wicked get taken. Who are left? The righteous. And took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And that coming of the Son of Man be, we understand, to be the destruction of Jerusalem because that is what is in context right here. And it tells us that, uh, like verse 17, let them which, let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house, neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. Can you imagine the rapture as they describe it? is going to give people long enough to think about going and changing their clothes? That is retarded. Right. And mark your calendars, I'm being very gracious in my speech. I hate error. Amen. And I hate people who corrupt the Bible in, in passages like this. This is talking about the armies encircling Jerusalem because Luke tells us exactly what the abomination of desolation is. It's foreign armies encompassing Jerusalem and it's time to get out. And the Lord is just saying, don't waste your time worrying about your few little possessions. Get out of that city and get in the mountains of Judea. But back to our topic of 2 Peter 3 and the thief in the night. Verse 42. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched 
and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunken. That is corrupting ourselves with the lifestyle of the world. That's being having fights and contentions and grudges and bitterness among ourselves when we shouldn't have it because we want to be found of him in peace. The Lord of that servant shall come and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites and so forth. A thief in the night. Jesus used a lesson about a thief in the night right there. Because the Lord delays his coming. The Lord delays his coming. And so nothing has happened since the creation of the world, the scoffers said in the early parts of this chapter of Second Peter chapter 3. You do not know the timing of a thief, so you take precautions every night. Don't you? You don't know when a thief is going to come, so whatever precautions you take, whether it is patting Mr. Smith and Mr. Wesson on the back, or whether it's locking your doors, or whether it's arming your internal home security system, every night you do it because you don't know what night the Lord's coming. I mean, the thief's coming. And and it's the same with the coming of the Lord. We want to take precautions every night, every morning, every day, that we're doing it the way that pleases the Lord so that we can be found of Him in peace, without spot and blameless. Brethren, what is your ambition for our church? I want our church to be a beacon of righteousness and holiness, godliness, peace to the God of heaven. That when Jesus Christ comes, the brightest dot on this planet is coming out of Greenville, South Carolina. Not for our praise, but for His glory. And for your comfort and assurance and confidence, let our church be the boldest church looking forward to meeting Him. Nothing to slow us down or stain us. Nothing to make us ashamed. And how do we do that? Today. And tomorrow, we must be ready at all times to meet the Lord. Nothing in our heads, nothing coming out of here like idle words. In our lives, our lifestyle, our actions. You do not know if a car is going to be in your lane going home this afternoon. You didn't know if a car was going to be in your lane coming to church this morning. So you buckle up every time. Because you don't know it. If you knew it, not only would you buckle up, you would take a different route. We never know when those things are going to happen. We never know or we would hide the drill. Not that you needed to. It's a good lesson about power tools. More in the second service. Mmm, mmm, mmm. Mmm, wow. Second service. How's that for relieving the tension? I'm embarrassed, are you? I love this thought. If the Bible says he's going to come as a thief in the night, we should let our minds think about how we protect against a thief that's coming in the night. Jesus said, you always watch. And you don't worry about any delay. You just keep on watching. You know what a delay is with a thief? I haven't been broken into in two years. Why should I worry about it this year? All it takes is one break-in, and you could be in serious trouble. 
This is worse than serious trouble. This is meeting the God of heaven in the day of the Lord. You do not know when you're going to die, so you pay premiums of life insurance year after year after year to protect yourself from that event. You know, we do it in all these other ways. And the Bible says the children of this world are wiser in their generation than the children of light because they take care of their future better than the children of God do. Let's take care of our future. How's your marriage today? How are your finances? Have you been giving like you promised the Lord you were going to give? You know we don't care about money like everyone else. But the Lord's going to make us give, He's going to have us give an account of our whole lives. Let's have everything right. right. Do you know, that is win, win, win. Because just to do things the Lord's way is the best way to live. Thank you, Lord. He's going to come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away. The heavens shall pass away. We understand the passing away of the heavens as a great change in their nature. The word dissolve is used in here a couple of times. Most everything that we know is a compound. That means it's a combination of different elements. And the Lord's going to dissolve it down to its constituent parts. To where we have the constituent elements of the universe, and He's going to put it back together in some way that He does not detail to us, but it's like our human body. It's very interesting to think about the human body. It dissolves. Is that what you read? Does it say that? In, yes, it did. Second Corinthians chapter 5. If our earthly tabernacle of this house be dissolved, reduced down to its constituent elements, carried off by worms, then by birds, then your windshield, and so forth. I mean, we just disappear. Should I be embarrassed about that one too? Maybe. I just want you to realize that we dissipate. Right. We dissolve and are carried to and fro after we die in the ground. But the Bible says that it is a resurrection. The Bible doesn't say it's a recreation. Do you know the difference between the two? He's not going to create new bodies out of nothing. Because it says very pointedly, we shall be changed. It's sown in dishonor. That means this thing is put down underground in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. You say, but it could be all over the place. Well, how about the men at sea that died at sea? The sea shall give up the dead that were in them. The Bible says all that. And so here it says that there's going to be some dissolution taking place as the heavens shall pass away. It's not in this verse, but it's in the next, and it's in verse 13 as well. The word dissolved is in verse 11 and 12. It's not here in verse 10. But the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. We understand the passing of the way of the heavens is a great change in their nature. The terminology here is, is a full elimination, it sounds like, that it's going to be eliminated and then a complete replacement is going to take place, but actually it's called a change. Right. He's going to fold up the old universe and change it. That is the terminology of the Bible, and we believe every word until we are told to give a secondary definition to a word. Right. And that word is change. It's not recreate. Thank you, Lord, for that. Oh, the change is going to be wonderful. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I listened to an old sermon last night, but very kind of a rare event for me to do because it's so much easier to read through the outline and quickly gather the points that were made. But it was one preached eight years ago here called The Whole Creation Groaneth. It's Romans chapter 8, verses 17 through 25. Oh, I love this 
passage of Scripture, and you should love it. And if you want to do something this evening to be ready for the Lord and to do something good for yourself that you hadn't planned, because I doubt if you have anything planned that is good for yourself, you could do this this afternoon, and that is listen to 47 minutes and 35 seconds of Romans chapter 8, verses 17 through 25. Verse 18, for I reckon, that's an accounting term. All you accountants, get a hold of this. This is comparative analysis of two different things. For I reckon, I account, I count that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The old heavens that we think are pretty glorious right now, and they are. They're glorious in the daytime. They're glorious at night. They're going away, and they're going to be more glorious because they're going to be perfected and delivered from the bondage of corruption. But I explain rather than read. Verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creature. That is a personification of the whole creation, which is stated clearly in verse 22, that we are dealing with the whole creation and... That means that it's not good angels, it's not bad angels, and it's not wicked men. It is the inanimate matter and irrational creatures of God's creation are all going to be changed. The earnest expectation of the whole creation, I'm substituting those two words, for the creature, because of the context, waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. God is going to reveal to the universe, you and me by name, that we are His brethren of the Lord Jesus Christ and His children. That event is coming. The whole universe, the whole drama of time, moves toward this one event when God will reveal to the whole universe that you are a child of God, a child of His. This is mine. And Lucifer will be screaming in the agony and fury of his destruction by the Lord Jesus Christ as he's cast into the lake of fire, knowing that there was no deliverance for him, knowing that his place as the anointed cherub of God in the presence of God is your place. That is mind-blowing. It is the gospel. We're going to be in the inner circle of God. Remember the angels are on the outside because they are not the sons of God. They are the servants for the sons of God. And we are the sons of God around the throne of God where the four and twenty elders sit representing the church of both testaments and the ministry of those churches in Revelation chapter 5. The manifestation of the sons of God. Those words should light you up. Manifestation means to reveal and identify who are the sons of God. When that happens, the whole creation is waiting for that event because the whole creation is going to be delivered as well. Verse 20, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him, God made this choice to subject the whole universe, the inanimate matter and irrational creatures, to the judgment of our sin. And so things are corrupted. Because the creature itself also, notice the word also, proves the point that the word creature is not talking about the sons of God. The word creature is not talking about the elect because we have the word also in verse 23 and we have the word also in verse 21, which means there are two things being considered. The children of God, which are His elect, which are you and me, and the whole creation. And the whole creation does groan and travail and pain together until now. The laws of thermodynamics and the entropy of this universe proves that it is under a decay curse. 
The creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. That means wherein dwelleth righteousness. There will be no sin curse upon the universe like there will be no sin curse upon us. We'll both be in the same liberty. It's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Let me repeat it again. Wherein dwelleth righteousness. It's verse 13 that's coming up. It's going to change everything. Sin changes things. Sin ruins things. Sin destroys. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. I don't care what part of... Remember, inanimate matter and irrational creatures constantly decaying. Verse 23, and not only they, he jumps to a plural from the creature, referring back to the constituent elements of creation in verse 22, but not only they, but ourselves also. See, there's two things being considered. I was taught poorly on this particular passage of Scripture, and I'm so thankful to the truth of God about the change that's coming to the universe and how our fathers in the faith believed it as I'm teaching it to you right now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which had the first fruits of the Spirit, the Romans and the Apostle Paul, some of the first converts to Christianity, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves. We're groaning, it's groaning, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. We are moving toward an event that is called the final phase of adoption. And the final phase of adoption is when he gets our bodies and makes them suitable to be in heaven, joined together with our spirits and as the sons of God. Back to Second Peter chapter 3. Oh Lord, there's so much. Our bodies will be changed to new bodies. I appreciate those passages that were read so much that God is able to take our vile bodies and change them and make them like unto His own glorious body, whereby He, according to His working, is able to subdue all things to Himself, including the heavens, the earth, and the elements thereof. He will make them all come into subjection to righteousness and perfection. Do you know what the laws of thermodynamics are for? That it is impossible for there to be a perpetual motion machine. It is impossible for there to be perpetual motion. Do you know what's coming? Perpetual motion. I don't want to get... For those of you that have studied physics and want to think about entropy and null sets and uh, anything like that, just go ahead and think about it. It's, it can be pleasant. What's coming is glorious. Everything is decaying around us and winding down. I don't know why it's evolving that way. (laughs) Winding down. I don't know how we ever got here since their laws say that we're always winding down instead of up. And from order to disorder, always. I don't know how we got here from disorder. I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in verse 10 of Second Peter 3, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. You bet. When, you, when we talk about that amount of matter and energy disappearing and being converted, it is going to be quite a loud noise. And we, we thank the Lord for telling us that. The explosion of fire and destruction should create an incredibly loud noise. It's a great noise. Do you know what voice is going to get us out of the graves? 
the voice of the Son of God. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. The hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear His voice. Not just the righteous, the wicked. They're not going to come forth by active obedience. They're going to come forth by passive submission to the life-giving, all-powerful, sovereign, omnipotent voice of the Son of God. The Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise, but the dead and the devil shall rise as well and we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we will be counted blameless in that day by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ received into heaven and announced as the brethren of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, He is not ashamed to call us brethren. These are my brothers, Father. Universe, these are my brothers. And that Lord Jesus Christ will have a look on His face that this world has never seen before nor imagined. That little picture of Him that they paint, that long-haired John Lennon look-alike hermaphrodite that they paint, when they see the Lord Jesus Christ with His flaming eyes of fire and His white hair and His white face, and He says, these are my brethren, but who are you? Unbelievable. He will have a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, a metaphorical representation of words that have unlimited power. He will annihilate this universe. Listen, before he even speaks, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11 says that sitting on the throne of God, the heavens and the earth will flee away from him. Can you? They are going to run and hide. The heavens and the earth will run and hide from the face of our Savior. Did you ever want a strong buddy to protect you from enemies? How about the enemies of death, sin, hell, and the devil? We've got the Lord Jesus Christ. This is coming. You say, well, I haven't seen anything like it because He wants to see if you have any faith. And if you're waiting for something for your little mucus balls that are hanging in two holes in your in your skull to see something to make you think that it might be true, you are waiting for the wrong thing. Listen, I'll send Matthew Jones to you and you can use those two little bags of mucus membrane and muscle that are hanging in, your, in the two holes of your skull and he'll show you that you don't know what you believe. Through sleight of hand. Don't you, don't you measure things by what you see here. Right. You know, I, I'm his easiest victim. I remember one time when he called me over to show me a new one. I said, let me get up real close. I mean, I got up so close to his hands, I wanted to see, see he had me then. Because then he could, he could mislead me any way he wanted to while he did what he needed to do. Uh, we don't want to wait for things that we can see. Nathan read to us 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. You want to live by sight? You're going to die, and you don't have any remedy for it. Because I can take you to a funeral home, and you can see people dying, and you can watch them take their last breath, and you think that that's moving and convicting. Well, if it's moving and convicting, then you want to look for something that is outside of this world. You want to look for something that is not seen because everything you see dies, including your car. Everything dies. So we want to look for something that we can't see that doesn't die. And you know what? The answer is right here in writing, and you can see that. See it, read it, and believe it. What's the new heaven going to be like? Well, it tells us a few things that we're going to get to before the day's over. But you know, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of details about it, and he doesn't need to. And Paul called a man a fool 
that wanted to question, well, what kind of body do they get when they're resurrected? Did you see that in verses 35 through 37 of 1 Corinthians 15? But some man will say, well, what body do the resurrected get? It was sarcastic. It was scoffer. It was a, it was a skeptic. Thou fool. The body they get when you put a seed in the ground is very different from the grain that is put in the ground. And we've been over those corn stalks before. Jim happened to send me a picture yesterday of some dear friends of his back in Iowa standing in front of 12 or 13 foot corn stalks, maybe 14. Huge. Huge from one little kernel of corn. And there's an ear or two on that stalk that has 800 itself. Plus there's a tassel that would keep you out of the sun if you were sitting under it. I mean, they're, they're huge. And so the Bible tells us, you know, that they're sown one way, but they come up a different way. That little kernel of corn is put in the ground. Look at the stalk and it comes up. It's just, it's, it's huge. It's so different. And so will our bodies be, and so will the heavens be, which is the point that we're at. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. There in uh, the middle of verse 10, Peter used the elements again in verse 12. He used the elements twice. The heavens are exclusively the focus here, so when it says that the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat, the focus of the Spirit's words are upon the heavens in distinction from the earth because the earth is mentioned next and the word also is used to show that it is a second consideration of how the earth is going to be burned up and the works that are in it. I mentioned elements to you last Lord's Day. Elements in the English language can refer to heavenly bodies and so forth. I wish I could take the time and show you how that there are four occurrences of the word elements in the Bible. I'm going to repeat it because I want I want the men of this church to remember that and the women I don't mean any harm by that. I want Aquilas and Priscilla's throughout this congregation. There are four uses of the word elements in the Bible. Two of them are right here in verses 10 and 12, and the other two are in Galatians chapter 4, where in that place they are used for elementary education. The elements are the basic component parts of basic education. Rudiments. So that in Colossians, where Paul had used elements in Galatians 4, in Colossians chapter 2, he uses the word rudiments which is rudimentary education or elementary education. And so the the parts of elementary education are called elements, and the parts of rudimentary education are called rudiments. And so there are false teachers out there that will compare those passages and force them together to try to say to you that all that is being described here is a metaphorical picture of the changeover of covenants from the elements of Moses' religion to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, when they have in Isaiah 65 and 66, new heavens and new earth, referring to the gospel dispensation, they have you, unless you're established. And I have taken so much time in this chapter to establish you that you would go back to verses 5 and 6 and prove that it is the physical, material, heaven and earth that are under consideration, not some metaphorical representation. And you say to me, why does God write His Bible that way? Because He wants us to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, work when it needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So that we see elements in Galatians 4, that is rudimentary parts of Moses' system of religion. Elements in 2 Peter 3, Those are the parts of the material universe. 
You say, why did he do it that way? I love it that he did it that way. But in answer to your question, why? So that those who do not want to approach the Bible his way and submit to the gospel of Jesus Christ can find plenty of rope to hang themselves. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Rather than just overflow the world as the floodwaters did, which caused all that had the breath of life or were called living substance, as the Lord called it back there in Genesis chapter 6, to perish, the earth itself will burn, not just its surface material and surface inhabitants. Everything has a burning or boiling point, and the Lord knows it better than anyone. And it's all going to disappear. Everything that you've ever put your efforts into to build something up is going to disappear. If it's a company, if it's a building, if it's a garden, if it's a tree, if it's a car... If it's something you've made in your workshop, it's all going to burn up. We don't want to put our trust or get distracted by any of those things that have such a hot future. Last Lord's Day, I mentioned a whole list of what are considered the wonders of the world today, and we just we may take a little bit of thought about how many man hours it took to build such a thing and then just blow it off. The Lord's just going to melt it all, dissolve it all, burn it up, and it's not going to have any meaning whatsoever. He doesn't care who built the wall of China. He doesn't care how many Chinese gave their lives in the the Great Wall of China. He doesn't care about the infrastructure of our U.S. highway system or the Biltmore Estate. He doesn't care that they have a dairy and they make their own ice cream. He doesn't care about any of those things. But brethren, at the same time, when we know that, that He is going to burn all these things up, let me mention briefly against an error that arises. The monastic or convent lifestyle is wrong. Because God is going to burn up this world, that does not alter the fact that Christians should work hard. Though it says here in this verse that the works that are therein, the works in the earth, even when they're God's works, like Mount Everest and the Mariana Trench of the Pacific Ocean, even though they're God's works, they're going to be burned up. And even if they're noble works on our part, they're going to be burned up. But we still work hard as Christians. There are always ditches. Can you see the two ditches? Making the things of this world and accomplishments of this life important and thinking that we don't have to work hard, but we should sit around thumbing beads and praying all the time. We're not supposed to do either. We want to go down the crown of that road, and that is to be to have a Christian work ethic and to work very diligently, and whatsoever our hand findeth to do, to do it with our might. Always ditches, ditches. And so I mention it to you briefly. Godly men will still work wise with all their might. The rules of working hard and working wise and working smart still count. They're still valid. They're still true in the New Testament. Romans chapter 12 and verse 11 says, not slothful in business. When you're giving yourself a living sacrifice to Jesus Christ, it says in the 11th verse of that chapter, not slothful in business. So just because God's going to burn it up doesn't mean that we're not supposed to be working hard. He worked hard and rested the seventh day. But He's going to burn it up. Godly men will still save money for houses to entertain in. The ant saves, and we're supposed to go to the ant, thou sluggard, and learn her ways, which in times of plenty put some aside to be able to eat during hibernation in the winter. We want to be able to entertain strangers. We don't want to get too spiritual like the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians, when they heard Paul preach about the second coming, they got all alarmed about it, and some quit their jobs, and they wandered about from house to house, reading their Bible and praying and listening to sermons. But that isn't scriptural. 
So the Apostle Paul comes along in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and says, Withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. You say, wow, withdraw yourself from every brother that walketh disorderly? You mean throw them out of the church? Yes. You mean shun them? Yes. Verse 14, same chapter. Wow, what sins were they guilty of? Murder? Blasphemy? Idolatry? Adultery? What sins were they guilty of for the apostle to take ten verses to speak about them? Not working hard enough. Not working hard enough. You say, Pastor, you sound almost like you're talking to both sides of your mouth not to be concerned about this world and the things that we can see, and yet we're supposed to work hard. That's what wisdom is. That's what the gospel's for. Right. To guide us down the center of that road so that we don't end up in either ditch. We're supposed to provide for our own. We're supposed to provide for the poor. We're supposed to provide for the kingdom. The Lord wants us to work hard. The Lord wants us to think about the fact that when we die, we don't get to work again with the opportunity He's given to us right now. He wants us to show our zeal in getting up in the morning and going to work and working with all our might and then cutting it off in appropriate times so we can still love our families, love our wives, teach our children, serve the kingdom of heaven. There's a perfect balance in the Bible. We are not in either ditch. We are going right down the road. And right down the road at times, to your perspective and the way that it's worded from an, a very um, fallible preacher, is it's these two things that are pulling. But see, we're not going to either extreme. We're going right down the road. We work hard, but we do not put our confidence, nor our lives, nor our love in the things of this world. The monastic or convent lifestyle is heresy from, it's lazy heresy from hell. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is real sanctification that I'm about to show you. 1 Thessalonians 4 is, is a very valuable chapter in the New Testament in that it is so simple to understand. It deals with three common errors of Christians, sins, faults, areas of sin, and then it closes out with the coming of the Lord in verses 13 through 18. But 1 Thessalonians 4 is a description of how we ought to walk to please God, which is mentioned in verse 1, and verses 1 through 8 are sexual purity, verses eleven and verses 9 and 10 are brotherly love, and verses 11 and 12 are these. And, after sexual purity, after loving the brethren, and that ye study to be quiet, and to do your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, This was common in Paul's preaching. It's in both epistles, and he said, We commanded you this when we were with you before this first epistle, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without. We want everyone outside this church to know that we are very hardworking citizens that keep that provide for our families, take care of our homes, have vehicles in good repair, so forth and so on. We save money. We have liquidity to help in time of need for ourselves or for others, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without and that ye may have lack of nothing. God expects a hard work ethic from us and prudent management of our finances. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Let me close with this point. I want you to notice that verses 11, 14, and 17 are all three drawing conclusions from this expanded presentation of what's going to happen to the universe. There's three conclusions being drawn. Notice the terminology. Verse 11, seeing then. Verse 14, seeing that. It's verses 
3 and 4. Verse 17, seeing ye know. Seeing. Because you understand, based on what I presented, knowing this information is what the word seeing means, it should have an effect upon us. This should have an effect upon us. What manner of persons ought ye to be? What kind of a person are you going to be because of today in the house of the Lord? What kind of a person? What manner of persons? And here it's going to say holy conversation, that is a holy pure lifestyle and godliness. And in verse 14 it's going to say living in peace without spot and blameless. And verse 17 is going to say, not being led astray with the error of the wicked and falling from our steadfastness in the gospel and its promises. The Lord, the great king, I am a great king and my name is dreadful among the heathen. He wants to know the answer to this question. What kind of person are you going to be knowing that he is a great God, that he has saved you by his great and only begotten Son, that He has told you how to live in the most special revelation ever made from a divine being to humanity, and that He is coming again to burn up this whole planet and all the wicked that do not obey Him and give His people a new heaven and a new earth. In light of that little bit of information, what kind of person are you going to be? He's asking. He sent Peter to write it down. And me to ask you this morning, Amen.